Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, everybody, as I speak, it is Thursday, but as you listen, it is Saturday. Whoa, is that weird? Or it could be Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. Whole different world, this podcasting. Yes, that is so true. It's a different world podcasting, but I'll tell you what isn't different. We have our legal expert, Jim Coogan, in the studio, and he's been with us for the whole ride. Jim Coogan, uh, welcome back to the bonus Ben Jarofsky show. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. All right. We have a lot to talk to. As always, I gave Jim uh, his homework assignment, and he dutifully read all the articles I (laughs) sent him. And uh, we're ready to take uh, A to Z on all the legal issues of the day. And most of these legal issues, uh, when Jim comes in the studio, have to do with Donald Trump uh, and the various legal predicament that he is in. So we're going to do a lot of bar talk. We're going to talk about the IRS and taxes. But before I let you leave the studio, uh, I'm making a mental note to myself. And to you, Jim, let's talk about uh, Congressman Devin Nunes and the curious way, I'll just put it that way, uh, he's using First Amendment, or excuse me, he's using libel law as a weapon. Uh, He just sued another uh, media establishment. First he sued Twitter, now he's uh, suing the McClatchley uh, paper uh, chain. So we'll be talking about uh, uh, Congressman Devin Nunes, the First Amendment, libel cases, etc. But let's start at the top. Uh, William Barr, our uh, attorney general, uh, Donald Trump's nominee to run the uh, Justice Department, just finished up two days of testimony as we speak. I think it was two days before Congress talking about um, uh, the Mueller report. So let's start with that. Uh, Give folks a little update on sort of um, what were some of the highlights, if you will, of Barr's testimony. Highlights is an interesting choice. (laughs) In terms, I don't think that any of that exercise at least from an objective perspective, looked like a highlight in terms of how democracies are supposed to function, and in particular the way the checks and balances are supposed to work among the branches of the federal government for the United States. But uh, maybe some of my mission here when I come to talk to you about these things, I almost feel like I'm uh, trying to stand up and sort of apologize for or try to point out that the law can work in the right way sometimes. Uh, But the reality is you got to point out when it's not. So I think the, the biggest takeaway, the biggest highlight that uh, you, you can observe just by listening to the words, the way the attorney general presented himself, uh, it did not behave and did not speak as if he was, as you described him, the attorney general for the United States. Um, that's, the, that's the first point that I would make about it because the 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 phrasing and the way that the questions were answered, uh, there wasn't necessarily as much contentiousness as there has been in other uh, hearings before Congress since the Democrats have taken the House with uh, Trump appointees and Trump representatives from his administration, but there was a lot of speaking to talking points. Well, if he didn't sound like he was the Attorney General of the United States, what did he sound like? It was very defensive. It was as if the, so the the big gripe from Donald Trump during the first year or so of his presidency when he appointed his, at one point in time, ally, Jeff Sessions, uh, senator from Alabama previously, and before that was a federal prosecutor at one point, so he is a lawyer, he made him his initial attorney general and in, immediately, as soon as Mr. Sessions recused himself from the, the Mueller special counsel investigation, just tore into him and he was it was you know all of a sudden now he's yeah. uh excommunicated from the inner part of the circle uh because he believed mr trump believed and d- demands that the lawyer be his lawyer that's not how it works i mean that's what i'm trying to say in terms yeah. of why this is not how it's supposed to function that job is to be defending the united states constitution prosecuting cases on behalf of the united states constitution you don't swear an oath to the president the military doesn't swear an oath to the president. None of the cabinet members do. It's to the Constitution. So their job is to uphold the law. Now, obviously, lawyers, you can have five lawyers read the same document and get five interpretations of what it says. But 
it, there is some objective reality there. That's going to be within some bounds, uh, especially if they know what they're really talking about. So even though you can be the attorney general and have a lot of different ways of approaching it, if you, you have to be within certain framework. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not being faithful to that oath. And I'm not saying that that's what Mr. Barr was doing this week, but it got real close because, you know, some of the responses to questions about the Affordable Care Act, he's citing political talking points in response to that. His, his answer to the question, I think it was Matt Cartwright from Pennsylvania was asking him about what would happen now that the Justice Department has switched its position and is trying to help uh, assist on the side of a, a, a prosecution to invalidate the entire Affordable Care Act, was a, it wasn't about the merits of the case. His response was, well, the president's going to have a replacement plan. Well, what does that have to do? Yes. You're the attorney general. That's a, that's a legislative thing. That's, that's something that the, the White House correspondent, you know, uh, press secretary could be talking about. That's not for the attorney general to say under oath in front of Congress. Yeah. In other words, in that Because there case, also is no alternative plan. Just, all right. Just, yeah, there, there is no right. There has never been an alternative plan. An important clarification. But the, we, were, we went on a little tangent there, but let's, let's file, file you on it. Uh, the health care issue, I think a judge... Uh, down south somewhere, I can't remember which. Texas, Texas very good. Uh, ruled uh, that the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, was uh, unconstitutional. And the Justice Department, the Trump Justice Department, uh, sort of joined the case uh, against Obamacare. And so it is a, a constitutional, if you will. I know I'm putting that in quotes because everything's political, Jim. But essentially, it should be a constitutional point uh, that William Barr is discussing in his congressional hearing. He should be talking about the merits of the lawsuit and whether in his in the department's opinion, it is constitutionally sound. Is that correct? I would say yes. And the questions that were put to him by Representative Cartwright were about what some of the implications and what the consequences would be. But if you're the attorney general, you run the Justice Department and you set policy about how they approach these cases, then his response could have been, well, Representative, in fact, because of X, Y, and Z, these are the reasons why we believe that the underlying decision was correct Mm -hmm. and should be affirmed at the appellate level. And... It's because it is unconstitutional because of those, you know, here's my rationale. Then what else can the representative say? Then then those consequences are a political question and it's up to to the Congress and the president to fix it. But his response instead is about this this phantasm of, uh, of, of a thing that the president holds out there because it's one of his favorite things to do is create suspense mm-hmm. about something. And it's always vague. And it's there's in this case. You know, you also have the political reality of they had the Congress, they had the presidency, and in all likelihood would have had anything that was challenged in front of the Supreme Court would have been upheld for two years before the 2018 election. There was no alternative. The closest they got to it was failing to pass something in the Senate with with the infamous thumbs down from John McCain, yeah. and which, of course, the president is still sour about. But um, if he had an alternative and was serious about it, then they could have done it. So it, it, I mean, I think that just underscores the notion that he's not serious about it. But in other words, bringing this all back to William Barr, that's not a response befitting of the Attorney General of the United States, in my opinion. Well, but here's the interesting predicament that he's in. Uh, Follow me on this. Uh, Donald Trump was very upfront about uh, his the political decision in the first go around when he had that up or down vote, uh, and then on health care and. John McCain gave the famous down, uh, the thumbs down signal, and he voted against it to defeat the attempt by Trump to uh, destroy to an repeal. island. To repeal. Yeah. Yes, that's the exact word. Without repeal. a replacement. Without a replacement. Just repeal. Get rid of it. <laughs> it's utter insanity. The net effect of uh, John McCain having voted the other way will be accomplished judicially, legally, uh, if judges, if the Supreme Court upholds this Texan court, this Texan Texas judge's decision that Obamacare is unconstitutional. So if Barr, on behalf of the Trump Justice Department, weighs in on the legal challenge to Obamacare, it will be accomplishing the same goal uh, that Trump set out to accomplish politically, but have a political up or down vote on repealing it. So effectively, the... Um, the legal is the political, if you follow what I'm saying. Do you understand? It's just a different way of achieving the same goal. It 
it would it's not incorrect to to look at this and say it's legislative policy making from your attorney general from the administrative branch from the from the legal part of it utilizing the the judicial branch to do it um which is really look you can appreciate that if that is what you want if you were a person of that persuasion who hates the affordable care act and that you'd be thrilled about that outcome but in a functioning democracy in a representative democracy the more you make policy like that the worse it's going to be ultimately because now you're talking about decisions that should be weighed by a legislative body where they're all individually elected where people have at least theoretically some kind of voice in how those people are getting to that congress and then those representatives are accountable mm-hmm. but you know in terms of the policies that they pass and they get up or down votes every two years as to whether they're effective but that's the place where you hash out what the right policy is for the country not tearing things apart ex post facto Mm -hmm. by holding open a supreme court seat packing the court choosing a venue in texas where you know which judge you're going to get assigned to which is what they explicitly did in this case they know who that judge is and they know he's the only judge that hears those cases in that circuit so if they file it there it goes on his bench it's not like filing a lawsuit at at the daily center downtown in cook county here where there's uh, 20 judges in the motions court you don't know which one you're going to assign to so they chose him for that purpose they knew exactly how he was going to rule and they know that the fifth circuit which is the federal circuit that oversees that is a is a very conservative circuit they're expecting that it will get upheld there now do you think uh we're on a tangent here but i'm loving this tangent do you think that uh fifth circuit uh appeal will be in time will be before the 2020 election season I don't know if it's the kind of case that they can expedite in that fashion. Mm-hmm. If if it's if they can do it, and I just don't know exactly what the rules are and how, because there are constitutional questions of such import that federal courts, federal circuit courts, the appellate level, district court at the bottom, appellate court in the middle, and then Supreme Court at the top. There's three levels. There are cases where they can move those things along for certain policy reasons, and, and they can kind of even move them faster than than anything you would normally i don't know if that's how that would play out and you know it's a year and a half so maybe it's possible um so yeah i I guess the answer is i'm not positive how that would necessarily happen it's so bizarre because the republican uh senator mcconnell the leader of the republicans in the senate has uh, prevailed uh upon donald trump not to make any political movements to destroy obamacare to destroy the affordable care act he does not want that as a political reality when the republicans are running to keep hold of the senate uh, stem further losses in the Congress and reelect a president. He knows that's a political loser. So Trump has agreed, supposedly, that he's not going to advance a political uh, a move agenda, a, legislate, a proposed legislature um, to uh, uh, repeal Obamacare. At the same time, this is how schizophrenic the Trump White House is. They're pursuing this legal uh attack on it a legal assault on it you know with this lawsuit as you said as you just uh, pointed out that was carefully structured so it would go before the right judge and that's going to go for the right appellate it's going to land on the supreme court if everything follows mm-hmm. probably as we're heading down into 2020 at some point in the political calendar it's yep. just makes no sense from a political standpoint and yet he just seems to can't can't help himself jim coogan well if this were if the universe was shrunk down to where it was just a battle between Mitch McConnell being the policy advisor and Donald Trump being the politician, uh, like that's really what this kind of boils down to in in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, Donald Trump's impetuousness and his need to fulfill whatever instincts that he has at that moment will always prevail. I am. I do fully believe that Mitch McConnell is correct on the politics of this. That's the one thing he is excellent at, besides having no <laughs> compunction about how inconsistent he is with anything he's ever yeah. said before and just doing everything for pure political power purposes. Yeah. That's a side point, I guess. But um, but yeah. but he's correct in that once they had theoretically shut that issue down, mm-hmm. if they had left it off the table, it wouldn't have been a thing that will... Uh, that they're all going to have to swim upstream against in 2020 because he knows whether the president wants to admit it or not. He knows that's why the House flipped. Yeah. The vast majority of those districts are not deep blue, liberal, you know, mid 
Cook County districts where you can you can always count on the House going to a Democrat. Yeah. Those were swing districts. Those were purple districts. Those are places where the polling came back and 65% of Americans said the key issue for them was how they're going to pay for their health care. Yeah. So the message of there being an undis undetermined question, what is the law going to be on this, doesn't help them in 2020. But now... What I think the problem with the president has and that the whole Republican Party will have is because Americans have clearly said that that is their concern, even if they still don't like the Affordable Care Act, at least they know that there are some things about it that are helping them. Mm -hmm. And uncertainty is certainly worse when you're talking about paying for doctor's bills. Now the issue's out there no matter what. Either the law strikes it down before the 2020 and they, they won't come up with a solution in the meantime, and Trump will have to go around and have some sort of explanation as to what his plan is, or it's still hanging out there and he's threatened everyone that he's going to change the law after he gets his Congress back because he pretends like that's definitely going to happen. And now you can just, and so Democrats can campaign against it and say, well, hey, do you really trust what they're going to do with this? Because look what they did before and look mm -hmm. what his plan is. They still haven't told you. In fact, Republicans started trying to repeal this since 2010. And in none of those bills have they ever come up with a serious, actual alternative. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you have an alternative, let's debate it. But yeah. they never have. And it's been nine years. Yeah. No, I, uh, it's, and it's so further uh, ironic in that uh, the Republicans are usually accusing Democratic judges of being activist judges uh, that use the power of the bench to enact le uh, legislative uh, programs that they couldn't get through the uh, legislature. And this is the reverse, if you will. <laughs> They're getting an, an activist conservative judge uh, to eradicate Obamacare when they fail to do that in the legislative level. So uh, it's a contradiction in, in itself. The other thing Barr, of course, talked about in his uh, hearings before Congress had to do with the Mueller report. Uh, and um, <laughs> what I consider to be the very slow pace uh, with, with the administration is moving to uh, release the Mueller report. Give folks a little uh, up to date on this uh, or you know, a little bit of context on this one. Well, so once the report was created, there was a period of time where it's up to the attorney general to make a decision about what to do next. There are guidelines for what he is allowed to do with that. Uh, there's the guidelines that were written towards the end of the 1990s, if I'm correct about the time frame, uh, that say who he transmits the report to. And then, of course, that includes the attorney general. And in this situation, because Jeff Sessions had been had resigned and a new attorney general had been appointed who didn't have some sort of conflict of interest with that probe, William Barr, that meant that there wasn't any more of the interim concerns where for a period of time, we had Sessions recused, and Mueller was not reporting directly to him. It was, you know, Rod, Rod Rosenstein became a household name because of that, because he was the person to whom Mueller was reporting to. Um, but as of about, what, two and a half weeks ago, that Friday afternoon, the, the decision at that point was, now he has it, and his, his choice is what to do with it next. Now, what we didn't know immediately at that moment was the, the thing is 400 pages long, just shy of 400 pages long. Mm -hmm. But it's undoubtedly has, I would, I would think, my theory is it must be thousands of pages of various appendices, which would include all the source documents that uh, are summarized in the report. Because the report is a report. The report yeah. isn't the individual interview notes. Uh, it's not indictments. It's not um, whatever other you know, geographical information or, or sworn statements that they got from people. Uh, so the report is actually a summary of what is probably an enormous universe of information. So the first thing that, that Barr decided to do with it was offer a, a four-page letter that was out in the press immediately, uh, where he <laughs> called them the principal conclusions of the report, the two of which were basically the, the center of the political media world for the last two weeks. Number one, saying that there, there was not enough to there was not enough information, not enough proof to charge the president with, a conspiracy uh, with respect to conspiring with the Russians, and that there wasn't a recommendation directly on obstruction of justice, but that Mr. Barr decided, based upon nothing that he shared with the public, <laughs> that uh, it also exonerated him on this on yeah. that point, and yet uh, also very strangely decided to include the quote from Mueller, or at least from his report, that the information actually did not exonerate the president right. on the question of whether he's obstructed justice. So now you've got this bizarre letter hanging out there that's internally contradictory because 
now that we live in this bizarro universe, of course it's going to be internally contradictory. Um, and since that time, this week, coincidentally, Barr is before Congress talking about oversight, not actually specifically brought there to talk about this. It's just the timing was he was scheduled to be there anyway. He wasn't subpoenaed to talk about this because at some point he might have to be, depending on how he behaves going forward. Um, and so now the question is, when does he release the report? What gets released to the public? How much is redacted from it? Uh, and then how does that fight get taken up subsequently? Because congressional Democrats obviously want to see everything. The public, I think a lot of people, anybody who's asked, the vast majority of them want to see everything. Uh, congressional Democrats believe that it's in their political interests for, for people to see what was actually investigated. And, uh, now the, and, and it'll be a question of, what happens in the courts, what happens between Congress and potential um, uh, contempt proceedings, maybe, if, if Barr decides not to follow orders and to turn it over to Congress. But that's where we're at. Well, all right. So let's get into the issue of redaction. Uh, redaction, of course, is when you cover up uh, some parts of a report for one reason or another. Are there any uh, uh, any kind of rules or regulations governing what is and is not uh, redactable uh, that he has to follow? Well, that's the question. Um, so there are there are regulations and best practices and a and strong legal basis for what he should redact, at least mm -hmm. categorically. But even when you say uh, sources and methods of intelligence investigations, for example, would be one thing that would be redacted because you have to protect information that's highly sensitive, that's, that's uh, of, of a national security risk or to expose a, a witness or a source that might be, who knows, could be a foreign asset of some kind that, the, that America has, you would protect, you would take all that information out and there would be a basis for redacting that. But of course, until someone can see what was redacted, you're relying upon the judgment and you have to trust the person who's making the determinations of what falls into the categories of what should be redacted. So therein lies the, it, it still becomes another political question because at this point in time, and particularly because of his behavior this week, I think there is a legitimate reason to question whether or not those redactions will be made in good faith. In other words, his behavior suggests, as you were saying, that he's looking out for the best political interests of the president as opposed to looking out for the best legal interests of the United States of America. And I think he actually said today that that's not his concern. He's not going to take, he's not going to choose his redaction based upon protecting the president's image, but, you know. All right. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, let's say he redacts it on the public report uh, that we, the public sees. Does he also redact it for the report that the members of Congress see? He could. They're not going to like that. And they'll fight over it if he does. Uh, in members, for example, uh, the, the, for the purposes of intelligence, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee would, there's almost no material that they could justify being so sensitive that mm -hmm. he couldn't see it. So they would, they, if, he, if the basis of redacting something from his eyes was that it was a national security risk, uh, I think even that would result in a fight, whether it goes to court or not, there will be a fight over it. And Adam Schiff being the chairman of that committee is, has been privy to lots of information along the way, but there's still information that has not been revealed because it was a very tightly controlled investigation. And Adam Schiff, the, uh, a congressman from California, the head of that committee, a Democrat, uh, has been demanding that uh, the Congress be more aggressive in uh, investigating Donald Trump and the allegations of collusion or obstruction of justice. And it's interesting, uh, Donald Trump and his allies, uh, Jim Coogan, have made a very concerted effort to demonize, mock, trivialize Adam Schiff. They have nicknames for him. They hammer him at Twitter. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is part of the game plan, a different, the political counterback, a uh, counterpunch by Donald Trump to sort of minimize the consequences of the report and make it seem as though there's no uh, objective merit to it. It's all just a subjective uh, political game uh, launched by his enemies. Uh, 
and and the good thing is they do it in such a mature and <laughs> and serious way. Yeah. The the, the <laughs> way that they attack him, it's always on the merits. That's the nice part. Yeah. See. They come after him, so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to convince the American public that anything uh, with that Adam Schiff uh, releases would, of course, be biased and not worth paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And let's point for a moment to the contrast this with uh, what went down and how it went down the last time there was independent counsel, or at least the last significant time there was an independent counsel. And that would have been in the 1990s when you were a young scholar in law school, probably, if that, if you were that old, uh, when Kenneth Starr, <laughs> he's not even that old, so sad. Uh, when Kenneth Starr, <laughs> when Kenneth Starr, he was in grammar school, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you've read about it in the history books. I was in high school. I think uh, now yeah. that you've swung on too far in both directions, <laughs> I have to clarify that. Somewhere in the middle. Uh, Kenneth Starr launched an investigation into uh, Bill Clinton's uh, relationship with uh, Monica Lewinsky and led to an impeachment proceeding. Every single detail was dumped. These were Republican-controlled investigation, folks. Every single detail was done. Suddenly, there was nothing redacted in that. Uh, There's a lot of things I'm sure people wish that they hadn't read. Yes, they wish they had redacted them. So what's the difference between then and now uh, and the releasing of public information uh, on these investigations? Well, there was a different statute in play when Ken Starr had that position. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's almost like a historical irony or something that Democrats were more susceptible to allowing that particular authorization of what they called an independent council as opposed to a special council, mm-hmm. slightly more independent, slightly more power, and, and less oversight from the Justice Department as a consequence of the uh, wide-ranging, what, seven-year investigation or six-year investigation that Starr was involved in that started with Whitewater, I mm-hmm. think, was the original, or maybe it was Travelgate was the first instance. One of those things was the trigger yeah. um, because the Clintons fired most of their travel secretary. Yeah, was it Travelgate staff. or Whitewater? I can't remember. I think it was Whitewater, but whatever, doesn't matter. It was I mean, some, it yeah. started with that. It was far it, removed from where it ended. Yeah, yeah, 16 steps down the road mm-hmm. after investigating, you know, suicides and all these crazy conspiracy theories. Finally, the biggest thing they have is that he uh, had a, made a false statement about the nature of his relationship with a woman. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it was a multi-hundred page report that detailed in graphic, graphic detail all of the things that happened. Mm-hmm. So that was not redacted because he apparently felt like he had no desire to redact it. He didn't have to. He being uh, Kenneth Starr. Kenneth Starr could mm-hmm. have redacted more of that information. They could have changed how they, they shared that with the public. But I think that at the point in time that it was released, I believe that the House had actually flipped back in 1998, if I'm not mistaken, before it was released. Yeah, or, or it, 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 it was before they brought they brought the impeachment charges. Yeah. I guess right before they lost the house or, or whatever it was. I think they maybe they filed for impeachment and they didn't start until after they lost the ninety eight elections or something. Yeah, um, but either way, different statute, which then was allowed to expire. Mm-hmm. And so the only authorization for this kind of investigation now is what you heard of here, where it was a special counsel who was um, overseen by and junior to the attorney general and the justice department. So that's one of the reasons why the nature of what came out was so different. And, and by uh, the way, you talking about the salacious detail that was put in there, let's I think it's always important as a historical footnote to to remember one of the advocates for pushing for every question as personal and possibly disgusting as the answer might be was one of our current United States Supreme Court justices. Brett Kavanaugh was part of that kind of stuff. That is correct. And there's a memo where he insists that they go as deep as possible, which I think you can only interpret as being intended to embarrass the the president, President Clinton, as much as he possibly could, which does not sound like it has an investigatory purpose. Clearly has, I think, just a political purpose, but... No, we talked about this, Jim, uh, at length uh, in our previous uh, 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 roles on a different radio station uh, in a different lifetime. But we talked a lot about this, about Brett Kavanaugh. He was very much a political operative for the Republican Party in the 90s and really um, was enthusiastically, if to put it mildly, investigating Bill Clinton uh, with the hopes that this they could uncover 
cover some embarrassing um, details of Bill, of Bill Clinton's uh, sex life that they could use to undercut him. And it's beyond irony that this same gentleman, all those years later, would be shedding the crocodile tears at mm. that hearing uh, when it was done to him. About an intrusion what, into yeah, his personal it, life. Yeah, intrusion into his personal life. So looking for consistency from this current generation of Republicans, you're going to be... Uh, Yes, you know, you're not going to find it. Uh, all right, so here we have Barr then. So really, the ball is in Barr's court. It's up to William Barr to determine what we, the public, see about what our president may or may not have done regarding uh, collusion with Russia or uh, obstructing justice and everything. It's, all, it's, up to, uh, it's up to Donald Trump's appointee. It's up to an appointee who... When he was asked questions about it at his appointment hearings, uh, was cagey at best about the degree to which he would be forthcoming with the American people about what was in that report. Okay. I mean, and, and you know, you look at the timing, he was confirmed and it was maybe a month, five weeks later, all of a sudden the report is wrapped up. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of questions that. Uh, are not conspiracy theory questions. They're just legitimate questions about the time frame for how all these things wrapped up. And now some of them, you will be able to interpret the answers by what comes next. As you said, the ball is in his court. He's claimed that he's going to have something maybe even as soon as next week. All right. So uh, there's, as I said before, there's legal questions and there are political questions. And we were talking about this in uh, regards to the uh, Obamacare. There's the legal questions of whether it's constitutional. And then there's the political question of saying how far, this is the Republicans are asking themselves, should we push this without jeopardizing our uh political opportunities in 2020, the same thing could be asked of the Democrats in regards to uh, Mueller's report. In other words, there's the the legal issue uh, about whether the president obstructed justice or uh, colluded with the Russians. And then there's the political issue. So uh, how far do the Democrats push uh, a uh, bar to release this and how far do they fight in court to get all this information out to keep this alive I'm now asking you to switch you talked about the legal implications what do you think the political implications are for the Democrats in this matter well as I hear this this kind of thing you know you I obviously personally have an eye on the legal developments whether or not we have a functioning justice system in this country is pretty important to my job every day. So, you know, and I I care about whether it works because I have real clients who are part of maybe not the criminal side, but the civil side of it. So I have an eye on that, but all of this has a political context because the people in charge write the rules. So, um, the real question facing Democrats right now, when it comes to how much they push on this, because I'm constantly reminded as we're starting out a new presidential election season, that most of the folks who show up at town halls who are looking to choose the Democratic candidate for the 2020 presidential election, they're not asking questions about Trump, Russia. They're not asking questions about Bill Barr. They're still ta- they're still asking about health care. Yeah. And what about my grandmother? And, you know, wh- how do we pay for a home? And what about my retirement? So there is an there is an imperative for Democrats to make sure that they are talking about those issues, at least as much as they are about what crimes the president may have committed and what the investigation that's already been completed might show. But the reality is, no matter how badly it is it is incumbent upon uh, Tom Perez and the leadership of the Democratic Party and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and all the individual presidential candidates to talk about bread and butter, kitchen table, serious issues, because that's what people really care about. You know, you and I are can be obsessed with this stuff, but that doesn't mean that 80 percent of Americans are. Yeah. But if you don't hold the people who have the highest levels of clearance and power and authority in this country to the same rules that everybody else has to live by, if people are above the law simply by virtue of their position of power or wealth, mm-hmm. then that will destroy the rest of the system. It might not happen eventually, but it will happen. That will have a deleterious effect on the entire justice system, the, the rest of the laws that we live by at every level. It doesn't really make any difference. It will trickle down eventually. If you want to talk about trickle down and how those effects happen in a social, legal, political sense, yeah. if Donald Trump gets away with actually obstructing justice, if he basically breaks the Justice Department, that will have some kind of serious problem down the road. I don't know if that means that you've got martial law being imposed by some some guy who's even more 
mercurial and and you know questionable in terms of his judgment uh, than this guy or even during his second term god forbid if he were elected and then felt like he had carte blanche and now actually has a he he didn't even have a mandate from the popular election from 2016 but he acts like he does what happened if he gets reelected and basically would feel like well the whole country just passed yeah. on it. I mean, that's one of their talking points about his tax returns. They've they've started this line since the start. Mick Mulvaney's been echoing the same thing. I think Steve Mnuchin said it this week, and Trump said it in a clip I heard just today. This was already litigated in the 2016 election. Everybody already knew I wasn't going to release my tax returns, which, by the way, isn't even true because he clearly had been lying during that period of time, <laughs> saying that he eventually would, yeah. and he was inconsistent all over the place. But I guess that's the virtue of having 16 different talking points on every issue. You can always say, I already told you that. You yeah. know, you, well, the, the public already heard my position on that, because I said every possible outcome a year ago. Well, so. all right, now there's yeah, let's, uh, the natural transition uh, to the income taxes. Uh, although, you, I just have to say, you make a very compelling point. In other words, um, there is a compelling overriding uh, issue at play here. It's not just a political game by the Democrats to embarrass Donald Trump. Uh, and the issue is, is the president of the United States subject, subject to the same rules as the rest of us? And this was the same argument one more time that Republicans advanced in the 90s when they were trying to compel Bill Clinton to testify at a deposition. Uh, I think it was... Um, it wasn't Whitewater. The deposition had to do with an affair uh, it, when Clinton was uh, governor uh, yeah. in, 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 in Arkansas. So these issues, they do have, they're bipartisan, if you will. I wish, Jim, that um, we saw more of what we saw in the Watergate investigation. In other words, Republicans and Democrats putting aside their political differences uh, for a fundamental issue. So if the issue is a, a, a president who's acting like a king and says he's not uh, uh, he's not accountable to the same laws as the rest of us, Republicans and Democrats should come together and say, you know what? I may support you politically, but I cannot tolerate that you know monarch-like attitude. But wow. everything's political right now. You know, I know this is going to sound biased, but I think that the handicap, and I use that in kind of a generous sense, that most elected Democrats will always have on these kind of issues is they are, by their very nature, more likely to want government to work than a Republican is. And they are also more likely to be the one who says, wait a minute, I'm holding my own guy accountable for this than a Republican is. I mean, I know that's a broad statement, but if you look at what happened with Bill Clinton, there's proof of that. And if you look at the last independent counsel was not that long before that because we had an, an independent counsel investigating Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. and investing, investigating Iran-Contra. Yeah. And in that situation, there wasn't really very much bipartisan support. I mean, basically, as soon as that report began going and there was enough time gap, there was immediately calls from Richard Cheney, Dick Cheney, Congression, Congression, Congressman Dick mm-hmm. Cheney from Wyoming, that the whole thing was a waste of money, a boondoggle should be shut down and was anti-American because it was investigating foreign policy. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, that's, that's a handicap that Democrats have on that kind of an issue, Ben. But what you're talking about and what I was talking about is because the ultimate loyalty is not to the president, it's to the Constitution. That's that's what everyone there is is making that oath to. And like we talked, I said that earlier about William Barr. The same goes for all the congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans. They mm-hmm. both, they're not loyal to the Democrats. They're not loyal to the Republicans. They're not loyal to Donald Trump. They're supposed to be loyal to the Constitution. Yeah. So that that would mean putting those things aside and actually, you know, abiding by that oath. But whether that happens in practice is what we're witnessing right now. All right, let's just shift it over to the income taxes. Uh, the president is and his allies are saying this this matter has already been litigated. And when they use the word litigated, I think they're using it in sort of a metaphorical term. In this case, it's like the, the, the people of America heard the evidence and <laughs> uh, reached a conclusion. They're not talking about it in a very, you know, the legalistic term where a judge listened to it or a jury listened to it and rendered a decision. So let me ask you this. Is there... Uh, is there a law or a rule uh, that would prevent 
uh, either uh, president from releasing his uh, income taxes. He says he can't do it because he's being audited by the IRS. By the way, the longest audit I've ever seen. Uh, and <laughs> secondly, uh, is there a law or a rule uh, that would give Congress the right uh, to um, force him to release it? You know, I was thinking about that earlier. I was driving around before I came to the studio today. The the note that Donald Trump has been floating that that excuse for about two three years now about being audited Mm -hmm. i thought about that that doesn't make any sense and i don't mean from the general idea of it being a really long audit or whatever the other practical uh, criticisms Mm -hmm. people have had because you can't even tell if it's true which is a very convenient situation to make that excuse yeah that's true but more importantly why would lawyers have that advice for anybody else like he, he always says lawyers will tell you there's nobody who's being, nobody like you're never being asked by the public to produce your tax returns. I'm not. Yeah. Dennis isn't. It's not. That only happens when you're running for president. Yeah. In fact, you don't even hear it in congressional races. I don't think. I don't think senators tend to release their tax returns. So that's not a common thing. Yeah. That somebody would have always been getting repeated requests to, to do that and coincidentally and simultaneously being audited. And that's why their lawyers would say that. And, and but more to the point. Who are you, who, why not? Because if that were true, that means the IRS and Treasury already, obviously they have everything, their tax returns. He had to have filed them with the IRS by either April 15th or whatever the extension date was in that year or an amendment or whatever he filed. They have them. So what is he, how is that protecting an audit? If you really think that through, it, it makes no logical sense. I, that's it makes why, no. I completely I mean, agree with to, you. Yeah. In, in addition to all the other things that it, I don't even really believe that that's true, but I don't even know what you're. Because why would lawyers even say that to you? What would they care if they were public or private? The IRS still has the information, I, and you're I, still subject to the same penalties if you cheated. Yeah. Listen. <laughs> Welcome to my world, uh, Jim Coogan. Because <laughs> when you're when you're a working reporter, uh, and you're when, well, I'm more like case when I'm studying city policies. And the city will tell you, we're doing this for X, Y, Z. And what they say makes no sense. And many times I've written it and an editor will say, it makes no sense. And I'm like, why are you looking at me? That's their policy. (laughs) And then editors in the old days were like, really? No, you got to go back and get another. There's not going to be another answer. This is is what they said. They're not changing it. They're not going to go, oh, Ben, uh, I'm going to call back. The editor says uh, (laughs) he didn't understand. So, yeah, of course, it's illogical. You're absolutely correct. It's a logical response intended to divert uh, attention, intended to to say I've answered something when you haven't really answered it at all. Uh, and uh, if you just keep repeating it, then the, the, the person integrating you gives up and walks away. So I think that's uh, to a certain degree uh, is happening. Yeah. So it's absolutely uh, yeah ludicrous from to say that. So uh, so the Democrats, is there a rule that allows them to demand that he release it? Yeah. The, the original referral here. So instead of waiting for... Godot or waiting for Donald Trump to actually do it himself because he's not going to. That's yeah. patently obvious. And every time he dangles that that theoretical possibility out there, just ignore it because yeah. that's all he's doing. Um, the uh, Congressman Neal from Massachusetts sits on the committee that oversees Treasury now, and so he has made a request under Section 6301 of the I don't I think it's the of the Internal Revenue Code that the that his position. There's specifically four people with the power to make a request to the Treasury Department to re- to get tax returns for some individual taxpayer. Uh, it explicitly says in there that you can't just publish that information and, and that it's for that person's eyes only mm-hmm. unless there's subsequently some compelling interest to be able to share that information beyond that. But the so the, the legislative and the legal purpose behind the law the policy reason is to, and he's actually said this is what he's using as a justification in this case, even though the law actually doesn't say that he has to justify it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have to do that, but he has said publicly that he wants to know whether or not the audit, is it happening? And since once once Donald Trump became president, apparently uh, you you do automatically get audit, audited while you're president. So since 2017, 
uh, when he got sworn in, he he and the vice president would have automatically been audited. I think that must be a remnant of the Nixon administration oh, or something because yeah, the know problems that. Yeah. he and Spiro Agnew had, yeah. which was another investi- <laughs> a special investigation of Spiro Agnew. Spiro Agnew, the former um, vice president, yeah. Right. So um, taking literal bribes, it was a lot, it was a lot, a lot more straightforward back Bribes right in the White House. Um, so uh, he has, so you know factually that there have been audits since then. We still mm-hmm. don't know if that's true about 16, 15, or 14. But their question, what he's saying is his legitimate investigative oversight purpose, is whether or not the Treasury is doing it the right way now. Yeah. But the, the, so the, the other thing about um, using lawyers as an excuse for Donald Trump Notice the pattern, though. This is true about virtually everything that he does. He uses lawyers as a shield. He uses them as an excuse. He uses them to fire people. Mm-hmm. Michael Cohen was his bag man. I mean, I think he must have grown up in an era where he saw his dad doing something like, well, let's just have the lawyers do it. And somehow either that creates the legal imprimatur or plausible deniability, or now it's an arm's length transaction. And of course, when you hire a lawyer, they're bound by confidentiality. So maybe in some kind of mafia mentality, you think there's likely a less likelihood that they're going to, as Donald Trump would say, rat you out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> didn't work too well with Michael Cohen. Uh, that's a whole other issue. Maybe we should do a whole show on Michael Cohen and Donald Trump. I would have a lot of fun with that. We've, uh, we're almost out of our time here, so I'm going to skip over for another time the whole issue of uh, the, uh, Trump's uh, threat to do a, an investigation of the investigators. I think the next time you come on, we can do the deep dive on that. Sure. Uh, and let's just... Uh, Indulge me a bit, Jim, with one of my favorite uh, topics, First Amendment as uh, a weapon, uh, weaponizing. Uh, Well, in this case, it's libel law. Um, Devin Nunes, congressman from California, a a Trump backer, uh, was he used to have Adam Schiff's position. He was the head of that committee that was supposedly investigating uh, the White House. Instead, he seemed using that committee uh, to trample on the investigation. Man, this guy has now filed two libel suits, uh, one against Twitter and the other against the McClatchy uh, company, newspaper chain. Just talk about this is really uh, interesting using libel. Uh, this is so funny for coming from the Republicans who are always saying they believe in you know free expression when they want to insult somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> this dude has got the thinnest skin in the world. Uh, talk about what he's been up to. Well, the first thing that I guess got under his skin and very successfully so were some trolling Twitter accounts that were created to mock the things that he does, the things that he says, and the way that he, I mean... The guy embarrasses himself without anybody else helping. He's done that successfully for the last year and a half or so. Um, But there's one, I think, that's called Devin Nunez's mom, which they're highlighting some of the improprieties and some of the questionable business practices of the businesses that he owns in Mm -hmm. the Sacramento area. And then there's one called Devin Nunez's cow, (laughs) um, which, you know, because there's a lot of farming communities in his district. Devin Nunez's cow. I think he gets farm subsidies for his family farm. Yeah, there's a family farm. There's always some questions about the way that they decry, uh, you know, how people always have their handout waiting for government handouts. And yet here he is getting subsidies for his farm. But um, so they mocked him repeatedly. And somehow he is trying to, I don't know, I don't believe this will be successful, but has sued those people and for and Twitter for publishing it for libel mm-hmm. for and for defamatory comments essentially to degrade his good name and however he and I think that was for two hundred million dollars two hundred fifty million think, yeah two hundred fifty million yeah so he's not shy about what he, what he thinks his reputation <laughs> reaching for the sky yeah, yeah right yeah. Um, and then I guess just now, in addition to that, over an article that was published in a McClatchy, I think they own the Sacramento Bee. Yeah. So they published an article highlighting some of the Fresno Bee. A Fresno Bee. Mm-hmm. Pardon me. So one of the the people who works for a company that he's a part owner of said that they were at a uh, a function that maybe there was prostitution or maybe there was drug use involved. He wasn't there, mm-hmm. but they mentioned in the article that he's a part owner of the company. Uh, it was a it was a cruise, and apparently he was not on the cruise, and he also may or may not have been part of where they au- auctioned off the ability to join the people on that cruise. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, I guess he decided that including the fact that he's an owner of the company was purely for some kind of libelous purpose. Well, here's what I... 
don't understand how this case can survive at all. The second one. Well, first of all, I don't understand the first one. It's p- clearly parody. They're making fun of him. That's so right. I don't know how uh, libel law. Re- uh, re- and he's a public figure. Yes. There's a higher standard for that. Yeah. Which it's another reason why I agree with you. I, I, if you were waiting for me to answer you how how these would survive, I, I don't know that I will have an answer for that. Question. I mean, what it's truly, we do live in a monarchy if we're not allowed to make fun of our elected officials. You know what I'm saying? That's just like part of American culture and tradition. Sure, people have been making fun. Like you go back to Lincoln's time; people were making fun of Lincoln. So, yeah. not comparing Devin Nunes to Lincoln. I'm just saying. Don't that, do that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They are both Republicans, different oh, party. Yeah. Uh, all right. But uh, public figures, I'm reading from the New York Times article about this, uh, in terms of libel law, must show that the publication operated with, quote, a reckless disregard for the truth and with actual malice. And there are a few examples of successful suits by politicians because of these high standards. This is why I don't understand why this case has any credibility at all. It turns out that uh, the reporters for the Fresno Bee reached out to Nunes, but he did not respond to their questions during the reporting of the article. So... How could you say they're recklessly uh, throwing non-truths at you if you did not even respond to their questions regarding the untruths that they're throwing out at you? I mean, they gave them the opportunity to rebut yes. and set the record straight, which was is good journalistic practice. And if he chose not to say anything... Uh, or even point out that something was untrue. I mean, they gave him the opportunity to say, oh, I don't even own that company anymore. I sold that share last year. Mm-hmm. Well, then they wouldn't have reported that part yeah. of it. His name wouldn't have been the article. Yeah. So uh, I it, I think that it would be... Now, you, you're talking about a guy who has been one of the biggest allies and possibly violated, if not the law, certainly ethics, in the way that he operated his position on the Intelligence Committee. But Devin Nunez has clearly following in the Trump uh, one, two, three playbook here of big lawsuits, either threatened or actual big numbers, whether you ever, whether it's even remotely related to reality is not the point. You grab the headlines and then later on it's either settled for nothing or it just gets dismissed because it was ridiculous on its face. That Donald Trump has been running that since the 1980s. (laughs) And this is old news, but most people didn't care because he was just this goofy eccentric uh, property owner in New York who occasionally showed up at wrestling functions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was The stakes were definitely lower when he was just hanging out at wrestling matches. I mean, that, that would... Uh, oh, but for the days, I yeah. guess. Yeah. Well, I just... One of my great delights is the uh, ever... Just the always inconsistent pro- practices of the Republican Party regarding uh, First Amendment rights, free expression, libel, you know. Well, and I think he explicitly said somewhere that he knew that this would kind of get people's attention and get them to shut up or something. And there was some quote he gave to a reporter walking through the halls of Congress about this. Yeah. Um, which, In other words, intimidation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Using the, the, which, yeah. That, you're not supposed to use the courts for that. It's not a tool of your intimidation purposes in, in the public sphere. Well, he learned from the master in that case, uh, Donald Trump uh, loved using the courts for intimidation. And that's a good point uh, to end the interview. Jim Coogan, Dwyer and Coogan, ace attorney, a uh, good friend of the Ben Jarofsky show. Thanks for coming on, Jim, for this bonus special. Yeah. Glad to do it. All right. See you guys next week. <laughs> oh, that was excellent. Jeff. Watch I, out for those windmills, man. Dude, we, we were-